And John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Thank you, Stephen, for reading. Do you know, I'm curious how many know what a mercy rule is? Do you know what a mercy rule is? So a mercy rule, for those of you who don't know, it's when a game has gotten so bad, when it's just so out of control, that it's actually a mercy just to end the game. So there's a determined number of points or runs at a specific time period where you go, if you get up by so much, we're just going to put the losers out of their misery. We're just going to show mercy. And so that really is the point of a mercy rule. I actually want to talk about something related to mercy, not a mercy rule, but what I'm going to call a mercy visit. A mercy visit. And a mercy visit is exactly what happens in Luke chapter 1. And I want us to see what God is doing. I, I'm not pulling mercy and visit out of thin air. In Luke chapter 1, Five times the word mercy is used. So verse 50, verse 54, verse 58, verse 72, verse 78. The word mercy is mentioned. To be shown mercy means that you're not in a position of strength. When we talk about mercy, it's a recognition you're, you're not in a good condition. You don't have the upper hand. That's not who receives mercy. Mercy means that you are needy. And mercy from God comes to us, not just so that he can show us some mercy, that he can kind of leverage that down the road and take advantage of us later. But mercy comes strictly because this is who God is and the compassion he shows. A mercy visit. The word visit is also mentioned in Luke several times, particularly in Luke chapter 1. It's mentioned twice in verse 68 and verse 78. The word visit is, I mean, we can imagine, it's the, the presence of God coming to where we are when God visits. Sometimes that visit is interrupting. What we thought our plans would be, often it's surprising but it's unmistakable. So putting those words together, a mercy visit, I'd like to give at least some description, and I think I cobbled this together from a few different sources this week, but a description of a mercy visit is when God is noticeably present in your world with help on offer. He's got, he's got help to offer. When God is noticeably present, so we know God is everywhere all the time, but when God is noticeably present, in your world with real help 
on offer. I want to dig into that idea, mercy visit, more today, but I want us to first appreciate the context of Luke 1. I want to avoid doing something dangerous and really, I think, disrespectful, and that's treating the Bible as if we can just like pull a quote, get a life hack, get an inspirational story, and just be on our way, as if we can use the Bible, the Word of God, just at our disposal like that. It's so important that we recognize there's a a greater story being told, and you open Luke, and he's not just giving you a, a few quotable verses. He's giving you times and names and dates and places and customs, and so To show respect to God's Word, we enter into that story and try to understand what is going on there, what is going on in Luke chapter 1. And there are 80 verses, so we don't have time to dig into every single verse, but let's let's try to have some idea of what is being communicated because what Luke wants us to realize is this is a real story, again, real names, real places, which is such good news to us because this is the world we live in with names and places and times and customs that we bring as well. Without going into too much background, can I just give a brief summary of Luke chapter 1? We read the ending of it. Stephen read that a moment ago. I just want to summarize a good bit of it. It's a great chapter to read all of it. It introduces us to a man named Zechariah who is a priest. And he's a priest in the nation of Israel. We're close to right that, I mean, literally the turning point of history, kind of 0 AD or BC, however you want to count it. It's right there at that hinge point is where Luke begins this story. He's a priest, which reminds us of the religious structure of Israel, and that, is a, that has seen its better days by the time we come to this time period. As a matter of fact, the nation of Israel is somewhat politically stable. They're surviving, but it's not in a great point. We, we've talked about the kings. We've talked about like King Josiah and Hezekiah and Asa and Manasseh. We've been talking about these kings over the last several weeks. When you come to this place, there is a king. There's a king named Herod, but he is actually the king under an occupying authority. So Rome is in charge of most of this area of the world. And so any sort of kingdom is actually not really a kingdom because he is under, under another authority. And so things are not great in the time uh, in, this, in Israel at that time. Zechariah and Elizabeth personally are faithful followers of God. It gives us that clear idea of faithfulness. It also gives us a piece of important data for them is that they don't have a child. And when the Bible mentions that, there's always a backstory, much like, again, much like real life. When, when it tells us that they are really watching that window, the time window of them having kids has closed, humanly speaking. Years have gone by. The priest, so Zechariah is a priest, and he is still part of the nation that offers sacrifices, presents offerings, uh, animal sacrifices, and there are a lot of priests. I mean, there are thousands, some estimate even tens of thousands. And so who's going to be the priest who, like, is the main priest that offers incense? Well, that was chosen, in some ways, chosen by lot. So you would get to do that, like, once a year, the historians tell us. And so Zechariah kind of has his once-in-a-lifetime experience here at the beginning of Luke 1, as he goes into the temple to offer incense, and it tells us he's praying, and that is where God makes a mercy visit. God makes a mercy visit to Zechariah, to Elizabeth, really to the whole nation of Israel in that very unexpected time. This mercy visit for Zechariah involved an angel speaking, promising Zechariah 
promising him that he and Elizabeth would have a son. Zechariah goes where you would go and where I would go. It's like, how is that going to happen? And it almost is this object lesson, this beautiful object lesson of what's actually been going on in Israel. Because in that moment, the angel says, when Zechariah says, how's this going to happen? God makes another promise. I'm, this is going to happen and you will not speak again until your son is born. And then you will speak. It's almost an object lesson of how, in some ways, how silent God had been between the Old Testament and the New Testament where there was no prophetic word, no new revelation. They're just waiting and it's quiet. And so Zechariah will be quiet until the baby is born. And then he will speak just as God is speaking volumes by sending Zechariah's son coinciding, and it isn't a coincidence, but, but coinciding with, with Elizabeth expecting, another person is expecting in Luke chapter 1, and that is Mary. And Mary is expecting, again, a, a kind of unexpected arrival. She is a virgin, and she, is also, she also has her own mercy visit from God, an announcement, you, Mary, will bear the Son of God, the Messiah, Christ the Lord, You'll call his name Jesus. So much is going on here in the Middle, Middle East. But back to Zechariah. In time, the baby is born and he's named John. And once John is born, Zechariah can open his mouth again. He can talk. And we get to hear the, the words that came out as he gives glory, gives praise to God. And so that is, that is what Stephen read a moment ago. And I think with that background, that probably even helps us even more appreciate exactly what Zechariah says, as his first words come out, what does it look like when, when God comes with a mercy visit? Zechariah says, blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, he has visited and redeemed his people. And in his mercy visit, I want you to see that in this mercy visit, God reassures us of his care. In this mercy visit, God reassures us of his care. I say that because it's one thing for God to be merciful. He 100% is. It's another thing for us to feel it and to know it and to realize it and to rest in it. God reassures us of his care in this mercy visit. There's a movement. There's a shift that goes on with Zechariah, who at the beginning of chapter 1 is going, how can this be? By the end of chapter 1 is saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. You've kept your promises. You've fulfilled your covenant. Notice the text. Notice what he's saying in verse 68. We, again, let's go back to the words here. He says, blessed or praised be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited. He hasn't left us alone. And he's redeemed, he's redeemed his people. He's not left us in slavery. And he's raised up a horn. A horn is a sign of strength. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. We're not going to be destroyed. We are going to be rescued. And he's done this in the house of his servant, David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. You're going to read of words, of oaths, of promises, of covenants. And Zechariah is drawing, drawing upon all of this and saying, we are going to be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, verse 72. To show the mercy, not the harshness promised to our fathers, and to remember, not disregard this holy covenant that God has made, this oath that he has swore to our father Abraham. 
to grant us, do you see it there in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Zechariah says we could have this pointless, meaningless life where we're just existing on a planet, passing time, but instead we get to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We're not part of some evil, harmful, dirty scheme, but God has a plan for you and a plan for me. That's what Zechariah is saying. He's reminding us that when God comes with a mercy visit, it is a reassurance. It's a reassurance, isn't it, that God cares? I think about this because Zechariah had to sit and think for months when he couldn't speak. I'm sure he asked some hard questions. I'm sure he had to process lots of things. I mean, maybe it's projecting too much of my own thoughts on him, but surely there's uncertainty and confusion. Certainly there would be anxieties and worries. Surely he thought about all the situations that he could control and the many, many he couldn't. And here he gets a confirmation that God has visited. God has shown mercy. We need God. We need that same visit of mercy by God. Because just like Zechariah, there's nothing we could claim to have earned God's mercy. Again, mercy doesn't really, doesn't really travel in the earn it, deserve it, work for it category. And we all find that to be really good news. I guess, I guess you could brag about your track record. I guess I could talk about how sinless I've been. Like, ah, maybe it's been I don't know, three months since I last, I mean, I could talk about my perfect attitude all the time. You could, you could talk about how you're 100% devoted to the Lord all the time, 100% of the time. And we could trot all these things out, but we know, we know that all would be a joke. It's a total joke. It's not even going to have a long shelf life of realism because we know that's not the reality. We, we can't trot out how good, how perfect we've been and tell ourselves we've achieved and we've earned and we've deserved. Are we really going to approach the perfect almighty God self-absorbed and really impressed by how much we've really done to make this world a better place? Are we really going to approach God like that? We're not. We know that's not the way it really is. We approach him recognizing how deeply we need mercy and Zechariah gets assurance that God makes mercy visits. This side, I mean, we do live in a different time period than Zechariah by a long ways. I mean, not just earthly speaking, but even just theologically speaking by, by what God has done. We know this side of Jesus coming and living and loving and dying and rising and ascending. We know now that he is not just making an occasional visit, but he has made a once for all permanent visit. He is with us. That's what he promised. I will never leave you. And he sent his spirit with us. So he is with us. We have, we have been visited by God and that will not change. He has made a mercy visit. 
Will we receive that? Will we believe that? Will we recognize that what Jesus has done means God has visited us in mercy? When we, when we realize that, when we realize this, it, it doesn't mean that the world magically gets changed to a place where there are no problems. The fact is, God may visit us, may visit you, may visit you this morning, and you may have that unmistakable awareness of his presence and knowing that he has come to your real world with help on offer. You know, lots of things aren't going to change. The world isn't going to be 150% nicer. And the mess that you had yesterday probably is going to exist today. And there will always be plenty of orange barrels on I-95, I promise. And there, there is going to be times where we feel very lonely and on our own. And the kids aren't going to magically behave better. We know this. And yet somehow because God is who he is, we have an unmistakable sense, an inexplicable peace, a confidence, a hope that God has come. And somehow we find a way to sleep and rest and pray and cry and sing and hang in there knowing God's come. He's visited. And we're reassured once again of his care. I can appreciate, I can appreciate skepticism. And I think it's fair to ask, like, that almost seems too good to be true. I mean, we really are talking about the God who made all the world, the planets, the stars. The God who makes everything really comes to a personal, like, to me, to reassure me that he cares. Like, I can appreciate the skepticism, but I do want to make sure you understand Luke has researched this account. When he writes this, he's not presenting it as some myth with lots of symbolism and metaphors. He's presenting it as like, I talked to eyewitnesses who saw Jesus, who saw this whole thing go down. And, and so he's telling us, this is a real story. He's writing with clarity so that you might understand the truth about who Jesus is. So while I can, I, I wouldn't ask you to check all skepticism at the door. I would tell you, like, you need to receive Luke in the, in the manner in which he wrote it, telling you, you need to consider this man that has changed everything. In God's mercy visits, he reassures us of his care and that would be amazing. And yet I feel like it goes another layer deeper. And that is in God's mercy visits, he also makes his care personal. He makes his care personal. You could think of God mostly in terms of like wise sayings that he makes. And you could think of him with giving us wise life principles to follow that it would be in our best interest to observe. And you can think of God in those terms, but that would fall well short of exactly why Jesus has come to us. Our need of mercy has always been personal to God. He doesn't just give us a saying and then go live your life by that saying. With us needing mercy so deeply, God comes in the form of a, a person. It's always personal. Notice, even as we listen to Zechariah, he is praising God, he's blessing God. But then kind of right in the middle of him blessing God, again, it gets personal because he is looking, it seems like in his arms, is a son he never thought he would have. 
And so he looks at his son, John, and he says this in verse 76, and you child, like this is how God shows his, his care very personally. You child will be called the prophet, the spokesman of the most high. For you are going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. You will go before the Lord to level things out, to prepare them for Jesus. How amazing is this? He's looking at a person, a human being. He's saying, John, you're going to give knowledge of the rescue of God, that God isn't just going to leave this world in its mess, but personally he's coming and, and my son, you are going to give knowledge of this rescue. You're going to give knowledge of salvation, not just that we could somehow be the best versions of ourselves, not just that we could live a life that proves the doubters wrong and makes our parents proud, but he looks at his son and says, you are going to be the announcer of salvation, of rescue. I think of John the Baptist and what his ministry was because a few short chapters later, I mean, I think you're in Luke chapter 3 and you find John in the Jordan River. And he has grown up at that point and there are men and women coming to him. And basically what they're doing is they're outing themselves as sinners publicly right there at the Jordan River. They're coming to God and they're saying life isn't okay. And no religious help seems to be coming. And I can't save myself. And I have nowhere to turn. And I need God. I need God to show mercy. And so they get immersed in water to show cleansing comes from God. And John baptizes them. It's a baptism of repentance. And that word repentance is just that word that means a turnaround. And what they're saying is, I, I need a turnaround and I can't do it. So God, I am in need of your mercy. And John baptizes person after person who is publicly declaring, I'm a sinner and I need God. And then John says, I'm baptizing now, but there's, there's one who is great and he is coming right behind me. Talking about his cousin, Jesus there's a great one coming. And I wonder where John learned that lesson. Well, he learned it from his dad because his dad, even in this prophecy, talks about another way God makes his care personal. You see it in verse 78. There's another person that's indicated and, and we don't have a name. We don't have the name, but we, we certainly know who is being identified. In verse 78, it says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, and that sunrise is used as a language for an individual. The sunrise will visit us from on high. And the sunrise will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The sunrise will guide our feet into the way of peace. The sunrise, the dawn of light. This is a person. This isn't just a nice 6 a.m. sunrise. The language is actually from Isaiah 9, where the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who are walking in darkness, a light has dawned on them. And he has a name, Wonderful Counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so Zechariah is drawing on Isaiah 9 and saying the sunrise is coming. As much as 
as much as the Messiah is a son of David, and you could trace the genealogy, he also comes from on high. Visiting us, the word visit is always like a word that God does the visiting. So we've got this picture of a, of a human son of David and a God visiting on high, and you put those together and you do get some superhuman, actually theologically we say he is God-man. He is the God-man. This is God in flesh visiting us, making a mercy visit to us. This is exactly how God makes his care personal. And that changes things. When God makes his visit like so personal that he comes in the flesh, that changes things. I was listening. I love watching Christmas concerts and I'm a sucker for them. I listen to so many uh, throughout Christmas season. And most of the time I fast forward when they talk. I love to hear the singing, not so much the talking. So I listen to the songs, but I happened to be listening the other night to um, one of the singers and the songs were wonderful and fun and all that. But then in the middle, he was talking about uh, his desire that his music, his music would bring peace all over the world and light and hope. And I thought, you just got done singing, Santa Claus is coming to town. I don't think like peace to the world is coming. You know, I, I appreciate it. It was a great special. Love the music. Probably will download the song. Yeah. But I'm not sure you can bring peace by singing some notes, but how different it is. How different it is when Jesus comes. How different it is when a mercy visit means God comes in flesh. How different it is when Jesus comes and deals with sin and death and hell. How different it is when Jesus comes and overrides the effects of sin and the curse and evil. How different it is when Jesus ushers in a totally new age, a new world where it's all centered on him. And one day he will establish it permanently. I mean, we have a taste now, but one day it's established permanently. That visit means something. That kind of personal visit actually changes things. And that's exactly how God makes his care personal. And I have to ask, like, do you believe that? Are you resting in that? It's not enough to get caught up in the spirit of Christmas. Like, I, have you had that personal encounter with the Lord? Have you recognized that God has come to visit and once again, I just have to remind us, these visits are mercy visits because I don't, I don't know that it matters so much how many straight A's you make or whether you have that photographic memory or how impressive the resume is or what the business card says that's like amazing and your achievements. I don't know that it matters that you have a, a massive retirement account. I don't think any of that matters when it comes to being in a position of need before God. What matters there is will God show mercy? Will God show mercy when you still get yourself in trouble with your mouth? Because you just had to run it. And there it again, it messes stuff up. Will God still show mercy when in about five minutes you can range from being cocky and think you got the world by the tail and you're depressed thinking it's all unraveling in about five minutes time? Will God still show mercy then? Will he still show mercy when you don't like when you don't have a series of good decisions, but when there are actually some bad decisions and when you hurt people sometimes, well, will God show mercy then? And the good news again is that this side of Jesus living and loving and dying and rising and ascending and living in us through his Holy Spirit is that Jesus has come 
so that we might know God has made a personal visit. And I think many of us have experienced that. For me, it does feel very, very personal. I could take you to places geographically. I could take you to a bench at a camp in North Carolina. I could take you to a funeral home in Augusta. I could take you to a college dorm in Pensacola, Florida. I could take you to seats here in my house, and I could take you to a soccer field in New Hampshire, where it just was unmistakable that God is present. I have no doubt that people much smarter than I could explain what I felt by, oh, you had this chemical reaction and you had this rush of this and this and it made you feel this way. And I would say, I think that's 100% right. I think God created us with a body that feels all sorts of things and there are explanations chemically for what's going on and that doesn't diminish one single aspect of the realness of God being present with his people saying, you're not going at this alone. You're not walking this hard road by yourself. I told you I would never leave you, and you need to know that's personal to God. And in those moments, we're reminded this is a mercy visit. Okay, even if there's not the perfect new job with the all-star team starting Monday, even if that's not happening, even if your kids still may not surrender to Jesus and may still run for a while, even if the cancer's not cured, even if the past isn't immediately erased, even if the problems don't go away. It does not diminish the fact that God is present and says, we, we are going to make it through this. I am with you, always. Maybe God has interrupted things. And Jesus is, again, reminding you of his presence. That's what I've asked the Lord all week long, is that the Lord would remind us again of his presence. And somehow, in a way, you may never be able to explain. You know God has visited you, and you know he won't leave you. And you know he's in control, even as you shake and worry a little bit, because that's who we are, and that's who you are. And that's okay. And still, that doesn't diminish that God is with you and for you, because you have placed your faith in Christ, and you're resting in him. God makes mercy visits. He's noticeably present in our world with real help on offer. And this has become so real to me. I think I, it's one thing to study all week for a message that you want to prepare. And it's another thing to kind of live out that message, having the field tested all week long with people who you don't actually know how to help in circumstances that you can't change. And you go, I think what I am, what I've come down to at the end of this week is God I think all I have is prayers for you to make mercy visits. Our staff meeting this past Monday, it started out with lots of tears in prayer as we heard of this difficult situation, this hard thing, this hard thing, and that was just scratching the surface of a, a body that needs God to make mercy visits. And so we prayed. We did what we knew we could do. And we know that that same God who reassured Zechariah your prayers have been heard. The same God who visited Zechariah in mercy, not because he had earned it, but because God is just this way, he has tender mercy, is the same Father that I'd like to pray to now, to pray for you, to pray with you, and ask him one more time to be unmistakably present in our world 
and to give help as only he can give. Can I pray for us today? Father, without a doubt, we need a mercy visit. We cannot afford for you to leave us alone. And we do not want you to give us what we deserve. So we have nothing good in ourselves where we can claim we've earned it. We've earned grace this week. So that is not our claim. That's not reality. We need mercy. And so we ask you to visit. We ask you to be present. We ask you to redeem our complicated, broken, helpless lives. We ask you to give us a uh, deeper understanding of our rescue, our new life. Help us to know it more deeply, the forgiveness. Help us to know the release of guilt, the release of shame that we don't have to carry on our shoulders. Oh, Father, we don't want to just exist. We don't want to go through motions, but we want to serve you with minutes and hours and days and weeks. We do want our lives to be lived on mission as Nico even called us to. We want that. Would you light our way, Lord, so that we wouldn't stumble in darkness and foolishness? And where strife has churned up a bunch of stuff in our lives, guide us to peaceful paths where you make things right and where you reconcile and where you are firmly in control. And we do this. We pray that you would do this not not just so our life gets a little better. We pray that you would do this for the glory of Jesus so that people would see us and see through us and see him. We ask all this in his name. Amen.